I'm Jim Huffman, and this is If I Was Starting Today, a collection of conversations about half-baked startup ideas, growth tactics, and stories from founders, including my own journey as a business owner. All of the content is centered around one question. What would you do if you were starting today? All right, for episode 100, we're putting together a greatest hits album of some of my favorite clips from the past 100 episodes. So we couldn't include everything. I wish we could, but uh, here are some good ones. So we'll get started. We're going back to episode 41, where I get to talk with Nathan Berry, the CEO of ConvertKit, and he breaks down how they got to $30 million in annual revenue with zero funding by doing one thing by having a bottoms-up approach to growth. And it's actually so good, we're copying it and doing it with one of our companies. Yeah, so you have to focus on a really small niche to do it, right? Because in we're talking in the e-commerce space or or whatever else, it's really broad. And you're like, okay, we got our Shopify app done. Now let's immediately get Magento and WooCommerce. And oh, Squarespace just came out with Commerce. MailChimp's coming out. Like We're going to get integrations with everybody. And that is a sure way to screw yourself over on the dev side. Because you can't play that game. And so you have to say, okay, we're just going to be Shopify. Like we're just in that ecosystem. And someone comes and says, hey, could you do this for WooCommerce? And you just have to say flat out, no, I'm sorry. It's so hard to say no. I'm such a people, please. Man, that's tough. Yeah. And you have to do the same thing for like types of businesses, right? If you're in e-commerce, is it for like direct-to-consumer type brands? Is it better? What price point are you better at? Is it better for those who have tons of SKUs, like hundreds or say thousands of SKUs on their store? Or is it better for those who have hundreds, like dozens to hundreds? And start to narrow in on those ways. I would even say pick one community. Let's say we're doing, you get early traction with beauty products, like direct consumer beauty brands. And then narrow your marketing for that. Have your sasapp.com slash beauty And everything is focused around that. And then you do all these direct sales and outreach exactly in that space. And then when you're name dropping customers, you're name dropping, like I would have never heard of them. Random Shopify store owner has never heard of them. But within that tiny little niche, they've absolutely heard of it. And so you're like, oh, that person used that? That's amazing. So what I did for ConvertKit very early on, first, I did not take this advice. I was even giving it to people through the course of writing my book, Authority, and talking about, hey, you need to focus on a specific niche, narrow down. The easiest advice to give and the hardest advice to take. And friends were telling me, you have to niche down. And I eventually, like finally did it two years in. And then it started to work. And so we went email marketing for professional bloggers. And that was a narrow enough niche to get us started. But then I went way more specific. Like one example was email marketing for professional paleo recipe bloggers who are women. And now that's a list of people. Like we can list out Google, like, clicking through Twitter threads, like a bunch of searches, we can find all the most popular paleo recipe blogs run by women. And I bet they all know who each other are. And we did the same thing, men's fashion blogs in New York. What's another example? I'm trying to remember the subcategory, but like in the fitness space, like the high intensity interval training fitness blog. Because basically what I did is say, who do I have as customers that are already successful in half traction that I could use as like an anchor name to drop? in an outreach campaign? And then how do I draw a little bit wider circle around them and go after people like that? And so what happens is you figure out who's useful now or like who who has success with your product now. 
draw a slightly bigger circle, list those people out, cold outreach to them, follow them on Twitter, be active in that community, interact with them. And then you get to this point where you become the biggest fish in a very tiny pond. And there was this moment where someone said to me, wow, I feel like every blog on the internet is switching to ConvertKit right now. And I think our MRR was like $8,000 a month. And so I can definitively tell you, (laughs) I'm not going to. I can definitely tell you that is not true. And so in that, I was just, oh yeah, tell me more. Like who's, who have you noticed switching over? And they listed out a bunch of the people who were in their mastermind group, who they were friends with, who they knew, who were all in that tiny little circle that I'd drawn. And they're like, this person switched. This person said they're in the process of switching. And these two people mentioned that they talked to you. And it's like, yeah, I direct messaged all of them or emailed all of them. But basically we drew this tiny little circle and went after it like crazy. And so that's the way that I would compete with a giant company and brand is that I would draw a very small circle. Because the other thing that's nice in SaaS is that you win at every step of the way, right? So ConvertKit's at 28 and a half million ARR. Our like stated goal on our website is to get to 100 million ARR. It's not like we're going to achieve self-actualization when we hit 100 million ARR or anything. But it's like a goal to set clear expectations for the team. But we win at 10 million. We win at 20 million, 30, 50, like all the way along. There's no, it's not like this is not a success and then it is a success. And so when you're fighting, going after these big companies, you're not in a winner take all market. Usually there are some exceptions. Let's say you, you buy that company at 10,000 or 20,000 in MRR and scale it to 100,000 in MRR. That's a great business. And if you keep scaling it to 200,000, 400,000, that's an amazing business all the way along. Anyway, that's the way that I would go about it. And I wouldn't worry about that level of competition. In this next clip, we're going back to episode 24, where I talked to the CEO of Essence, a beauty brand. And she talks about her story of how she got on Shark Tank and actually got a deal and what that did to propel the business. And she also talks about how they coached her and it's pretty entertaining. And then I got an email that said, casting call for Shark Tank in Brooklyn, New York. And then I said, well, that's crazy. That's my hometown. That's where I'm from. Um, And then I looked at the location and it was at the gentleman's factory, which is also Haitian owned. And I was just like, God, is that you? Is that a sign? (laughs) (laughs) As any good Christian Haitian child is taught to do, look for signs and miracles that Jesus is talking to you. So (laughs) I say to Stefan, would it be crazy if I just jumped on a plane and went to New York to try out for Shark Tank? Now, Personally, I was hoping he said, no, honey, stay home with me. You've been out on the road. Go ahead and rest. But no, he said, I think you should do it. If your gut is telling you to do it, just get on the plane and go. I was like, crap, I guess I'm going to New York. So I jumped on a plane, missed a plane, still got on another plane. And I was supposed to stay at a mentor's house because you're saving money as an entrepreneur. Um, But it was so late, I rented some cheap motel in in New York. And I spent the night just, you know, going over my numbers, practicing my pitch. And I was just like, I'm just going to give it all I've got. And if nothing else, if they don't call me back, I know I did this. So get up in front of the producers. I give my pitch and the producer's really into it. And I'm really ready to go home and say, well, good job. You tried it. And I got a call. I think before I even jumped on the next plane that said, we're super interested, we'd like you to submit a video. And of course I thought, well, didn't I just pitch? There's more videos? Like, <laughs> like record that, come on. Yeah. Record it, hello? 
Um, little did I know I'd be doing lots of recording after that. And I like to say that getting onto Shark Tank is a year's commitment and job because at every step of the way, it is not guaranteed that you will get on. You are pitching to the producers. They want to see you with high energy. They're asking you 50 million questions. They are vetting you. And they really want to make sure that by the time you get in front of the bright lights, that you are prepared. They do not tell you what questions you will be asked. The only thing that they work with you on is your opening pitch. After that, it is up to you to be prepared for the 700 questions that may come your way. And that was a process as well. But when we got in front of the bright lights, what was most interesting to me is that after you do you know, your opening monologue, I forgot there were cameras there. And apparently so did Stefan because we both ended up crying on national TV <laughs> and fighting with sharks. And it was just so dramatic. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I think that's what happens when you have tenacity and you're fighting for something that matters for you. And to us, getting onto Shark Tank was not a publicity stunt. We actually needed investment in order to launch with our biggest retail partner, Alta. And we also really wanted to make our community proud because it's not often you get Black-owned, female-run, Caribbean country that most people are not fully aware of. You don't get um, your business in front of mainstream audiences. And here we had this amazing opportunity to share our story as well as get Haitian castor oil and our derivative products on the national stage. So it really meant a lot to us. And one of the key things the producers told us when we were going on, and at first I thought they were being a little crazy, but I think it's stuck in my, my psyche. They said, when you get in there, fight. Don't take no for an answer. And that's like the worst thing to tell me. I'm very coachable. <laughs> <laughs> so once I got in there, you know, when one or two sharks are out, I was like, we've got to save this. We've got to turn this around. But it really was very similar to a, I think if anyone has pitched at conferences, and I, I do credit the number of pitching that Stefan and I have done at the Cornell Business Incubator, at Sephora Business Incubator, for retailers, all of that by the time we got in front of the sharks, it's just a culmination of getting 50 questions thrown at you all at once and having to manage the room and be very calm as you answer, you know, some tough questions about the business and ourselves. In this next clip, we're going to episode 61, where I talk to Craig Swanson, the former co-founder of Creative Live, and he actually gets pretty personal talking about finance and personal finances and how he was able to essentially create a budget where he can make a bet to fund different startup ideas and uh, how it worked out for him. There were some opportunities to take a little bit of money off the table, and, and, and I did take advantage of that, enough to create a foundation for my family and to make life easier. And, and I will say at one point, you know, we had the traditional startup blackboard with, you know, where we are in, in the lower left and a billion dollars in the upper right. And we were talking about basically at what, what stages different people were needing for themselves and where they, how much risk they wanted. For me, there was always a level of risk that was maybe a lower than some of the other people that were looking at that board because one of my priorities was to take care of some family members. But I will say, so at, at this point, when I'm, when I'm looking at my future, I do have, I, I have an, enough that the family is taken care of. And what I did is I set aside $250,000 to basically fund my next, my next chapter. And 
I'm a huge believer in failure. I'm a huge believer in embracing failure as a strategy and surviving failure as a business tactic. And so rather than looking at that as $250,000 to invest in my next project, what I viewed that at and talked it out with my wife was, it was five $50,000 bets to fund the startup phase of, future, of five potential future projects. And so that kind of sets the groundwork. And, and then um, several years later is when I was working with Kaiser, but I still have that mentality. I still got a rolling fund of $250,000 for a series of $50,000 bets. So I'll, I want to pause on this because this is a really good framework where you have this like transition in your career. You were able to set the foundation for like money for your family and what you need. So you're not just like taking food off the table. And then you're like, here's this, this, this pot, this 250 K pot to make five bets. Did you also give yourself a time frame on when you wanted to do that? Or was it more like, Hey, if this works, this allows me to refill the pot. Like, was there any time restrictions? There were some. So actually even to go a little bit further, because this, if this is useful, like it was, it was very useful for me. And a lot of, a lot of people don't talk about how they manage money. There were actually two funds that I, that I funded. One is I funded 18 months of our family's mm-hmm. expenses. So up to that point, my, our family had been getting paychecks from, from my position at Creative Live and then previously from the company on previously. So like there was a, the family had a certain amount of money it took to run it. And I replaced the paycheck that my wife normally got direct deposited that she was able to run the family from with an with 18 months of funding inside of a Vanguard fund that basically did a drop every month to replace the amount that she was getting from my paycheck. Yeah. Um, and, and part of the reasoning for that is, and I did this, I did this in my small business. I've done this at many stages of my life. I need to separate risk in business from risk in family. Any bad decisions I make in the business that affects our income will not hit my family for 18 months. So I have always got this 18 month run to basically be able to repair mistakes, recover, do something else. And then ideally, periodically, I just need to refill that family fund. So I had a family fund that was enough to fund our family for 18 months. And then I had a, a investment fund that was enough to be able to place five $50,000 bets. In this clip, we're going to episode 43. I get to talk to Ben Wilson, another podcast host who has the podcast, How to Take Over the World. He breaks down world leaders, dictators, uh, business um, icons, and he tries to pick apart what makes them special. And there's five key traits, but in this clip, I talk about one that, that I actually think about quite a bit. One of the questions that interested me the most in these biographies is, what are these people the best at? In other words, is Mozart or Beethoven the greatest composer because they're just straight up the smartest? Like they just have the highest IQ or is it because they're the most innovative or they're the most charismatic? What is the thing that all of these people spike on? They peak on. And I realized that it wasn't IQ. They weren't necessarily, they're always intelligent, but they're not always the most intelligent. They're always charismatic. They're not necessarily the most charismatic person in their inner circle. They are always the most energetic. That's the thing, number one thing that people comment on. And so you'll see Mozart and Beethoven are the two most prolific composers of all time. In other words, they didn't just produce the greatest works. They produced the most. Like no one has composed more works than Mozart or Beethoven. And you see the same thing with like the number of battles 
that Napoleon fought, right? He marched extremely quickly. It's like he was anxious to be in battle. So energy is a funny thing. People talk about it in terms of work ethic. And work ethic is a little funny just because it's this thing that people almost expect you to be able to control. And I wonder sometimes with their energy, I don't know if this was something that they could control. In some ways, in the same way that like Steph Curry is just a genetic freak in terms of his hand-eye coordination, I sometimes think these people were just genetic freaks in the amount of energy they had and the ability they had to work really hard for long amounts of time. Yeah, you gave this example of Napoleon as he was sailing, maybe it was to Egypt or somewhere, and he stopped in an island for four days or five days. And within that time frame, he overthrew the ruler, like implanted a king, created a democracy and launched a currency. And then he wrote all these letters back to France. And then he went and conquered Egypt. And there's so many examples of this because not only energy, but it's even diversifying energy. Oh, in addition to being this great conqueror, I'm also a prolific writer. Any thought on how they're diversifying their energy versus focusing? Because myself as a, a business owner, like I can have energy, but how do you maximize where that energy goes to be on impactful things? It seems like these guys are also very calculated in where that energy goes. So that's a really interesting way to phrase it and a really interesting. I'll give you a little preview. The episode I'm working on right now is of a guy named Laszlo Polgar, because we were just talking before this that you have a couple kids. I just had my first child. She's nine months old. And so I've been thinking about how to raise this girl. And so Laszlo Polgar is interesting to me because he wrote a book called Raise a Genius. So he was this Hungarian psychologist and he had the idea that you could raise anyone to be a genius. So uh, he found a woman who luckily loved him, but who also was willing to go along with his experiment, who he said, we're going to raise our children to be geniuses. And so they did it. And he decided on the topic of, of chess. He's going to raise all of his children to be chess geniuses. They ended up having three daughters, and all three of them were just unbelievable geniuses in chess, including his youngest daughter, Judith, is like the greatest women's chess player of all time hands down, was number one in women's chess for 20 years straight as like the Serena Williams of chess. So, okay, so clearly his methodology and his approach, there's something there, right? And what was interesting to me is one of the things that he talks about is that's important for this is specializing early. So he had all of his daughters playing chess when they were three years old. And so you would think, okay, that's good. But the trade-off you make is that they can't be any good at anything else, right? These girls are just going to be chess robots which turns out to not be the case at all. This girl, Judith, who is the greatest chess player, women's chess player of all time, was ranked internationally for table tennis. She could have been a professional table tennis player if she wanted to be. She's also a phenomenal swimmer. They also, all those girls spoke between five and eight languages. And it was like the same thing that you were just talking about. Like they had all this energy to do all of these different things. So to me, it's like almost baffling, right? So you have to ask, first of all, are these people just freaks? But I also think when you find the thing that you were born to do, it gives you energy instead of taking energy from you, right? So on a certain level, like if you love chess and you're playing chess for six to eight hours a day, then when you're done playing chess, you're not exhausted. You're not like, ooh, that took all my mental energy. When it's, oh, hey, I also want you to play table tennis for an hour or two, you can say, okay, I got the energy for that. Or, hey, you should study French for an hour. Okay, I've got the energy for that. I've been building energy all day instead of spending it. And so I think that explains it a little bit. In this next clip, I talked to Patrick Dossett. He's a Navy SEAL turned business owner. And he talks about how he was able to become a SEAL, get through its MBA program and start a company on back of one trait. And that's having grit. Uh, I love his story of qualifying for the SEALs. 
Every day we're engaging in small steps that are mapped to the science of the way our brain and body is designed and that help us show up better uh, in our lives, not only for ourselves, but for the world around us. Yeah, and I'm excited to get into the origin story and how you all started to get traction with kind of this, this almost monthly kits that are sent to you. Um, but I also like understanding business from someone's experience and how it led to that. So what's fascinating to me is people that start in military for you being a Navy SEAL, then going into business. But can you tell us a little bit about your military background? Sure. I went to the, the U.S. Naval Academy for undergrad. When I was in seventh grade, I had the, the fortune of reading a book about the SEAL teams. And for me, something about the story and what I read, the book was Rogue Warrior by a gentleman named Dick Marcinko. Reading that story just planted a seed. And I was like, man, that sounds like an amazing adventure, something that I want to see if I can do. And so it became my sole focus. And I worked and was uh, fortunate enough to get a slot to the Naval Academy and then graduated from the Naval Academy in 2002 and was one of 16 people out of the academy that got picked up for SEAL training. So in 2002, I started SEAL training alongside 220 other very qualified, committed individuals, all that had a desire to be become Navy SEALs. That 220, five weeks in, got whittled down to 150, six weeks in, whittled down to 36. And by the end of the program, 17 of those original 220 went on to graduate. And so for me, it left a lasting impression. Actually, what struck me about that experience is that those 17 individuals were rather unremarkable. You wouldn't have been able to pick them out from a lineup. And in fact, all of the biggest, fastest, strongest people, those that maybe most look the part or that um, you would say, though, this person's definitely going to make it they were all some of the first to go away. And so what you were left with was this, again, rather unremarkable looking group that did some fundamental things and some basic things very, very well. And it just struck me and it, it only continued to impress upon me during my time in the teams, both in training and operations overseas, that we're all capable of so much more. We have this ability to push our brains and our bodies well past what we think is possible. It's just a matter of how do we unlock that. And what I realized is that that capacity exists inside everyone. It's not just, it's not capitalized by Navy SEALs or Army Rangers or by certain business professionals or physicians. Like Everyone has this ability. And so that really was, I would say for me, the genesis of what would eventually become made for was this this epiphany of how much mindset matters and how these very basic things that engage the right way can help us unlock capacity. Um, I was later going through graduate school and I'll be honest, I, I was going through business school alongside a lot of people that were far smarter than I, I am and was and far more experienced in the business world. And so a lot of the classes that I sat through went over my head, but I had an opportunity to audit an undergraduate class taught by a woman named Dr. Angela Duckworth. Her research is on the science of grit and grit as a determining factor for success, which really aligned with what I think my superpower is. And so I was excited to take her class. But her class was an introduction to the field of positive psychology. And I'm not someone that's into soft practices or guru type things. And I recognize positive psychology on the surface sounds very, sounds very soft. But what I discovered in that class was much of what they were talking about and then been proven out through evidence-based research and study after study after study mapped very well to my experience that there are some small things that you can do that are, again, are in line with the way that the brain and the body are designed, positive things that you can be in pursuit of that help you grow your capacity from the inside out. And it resonated with me and it just got me more excited about 
what I saw in the SEAL teams and put me on this path that I think I knew at some point I was going to create a business in this. I just didn't know what it was going to be. And so it wasn't until a few years later that that Blake and I, my co-founder, were were tossing around some ideas and really aligned on this this mission for Made For and, and started working on it full time. In this clip, we're going to episode 64, where I talked to a celebrity chef, um, Joel Gorman, about how he got his big break and how he tried to not freak out when going on the Today Show for the first time. So I knew when we moved in there, there was a lot of eyes that were going to be on my cooking school. And there was going to be some openings that came. And sure enough, people started to come down there on date nights or they would come down with colleagues. And I would have opportunities. I would get opportunities to go on little morning shows and local cooking shows. And one day I got an opportunity to go on the biggest show I've ever been on, which was the Katie Couric show. I don't know if you remember that show. Yeah. Yeah. Long time ago. And she wanted like three hacks that were good for baking. And you have one minute. And I'm like, cool. So I came up with three hacks. I had one minute with her. And by the way, when you go on these things, it's not like I hung out with Katie before the show and got to know her. She comes on set, everyone's doing her makeup, and she goes, hi, I'm Katie. I, I freak out, and I say, hi, I'm Joel. And they go, three, two, one, go. And you're like, oh, oh my, my God. <laughs> yeah. So literally, I mean, I, I did the one-minute segment, and then right after the segment, she looked at me and said, you're really good. You really have something. Will you get in contact with me? I, I'd like to work with you. And that was, that was another opening. You know, you see these openings, you get these lucky breaks sometimes and the stars align and you just got to kind of run after it. I've never had your food. You have not invited me over. That's a separate conversation. <laughs> but um, you are very good on camera. Talk to me about like, we know you got the reps to get yeah. there, but all of a sudden you have these cameras in front of you. What do you think got her attention to see that you're talented? Because she's seen a lot, right? So mm. she knows. Um, mm. What do you think it was? Yeah, I do think it was a it was all those reps I was having at Sur La Table, and I know how to keep people's attention. I knew how to not lose them, right? And I think most chefs talk chefy, and I was talking like a normal human that knew what he was talking about. So that was one of it. The second is the first time I ever went on local news, which was here in Seattle on Como 4, I was 22 and I practiced all night. And they said I had five minutes. I practiced all night because I don't know how long I'm going to do. And I show up to the studio and they say, hey, breaking news just happened. So you actually now have three minutes and 45 seconds. Oh, man. And I'm like, are you? I literally remember saying, are you freaking joking? I don't know if I can swear on this podcast, but I literally lost my mind. And I said, you know what? Screw it. I'm just going to forget everything I practiced and just wing it. And that was the best thing that could have happened to me because I think most people get in front of the camera or they speak publicly and they're really trying to hit certain points or they're trying to hit certain time marks. And when you start thinking about points and time marks, you become less human. And the more human you are, and the more you are yourself and the more vulnerable that you are, the more powerful that you are and the more effective that you are. And so when you go back and see that first Katie segment, I could care less if I got through those three hacks. I don't think Katie or her audience even cared about the hacks. What they cared about was a normal human being getting up there, having fun and engaging. And without that, I don't think I would have progressed in my career. We're going to episode 88, uh, where I get to talk to the CEO of Privy about how he was able to build a breakout SaaS by doing one thing and focusing on one platform at the right time. He really gives a playbook on how to grow through the right distribution channel. 
especially something like SaaS, where retention is key. You're riding a wave that's only getting bigger, which is e-commerce, which is Shopify. You have an amazing offer of it's free. So that's pretty easy for people to jump into it. But but what else can you kind of unpack that was helpful for customer acquisition? I had spoke to Nathan Barry at ConvertKit, and he did this bottoms up approach where he's trying to take market share from MailChimp, where he's going after like keto bloggers and like men's fashion bloggers in New York. So very niche focused. What are some of the other things you did for for growth? Yeah. So I think there's there's four things that really stand out from a strategy perspective. The first was being niche, right? So only for Shopify stores and not just for Shopify stores, because some Shopify stores do 100 million. It was like only for Shopify stores doing zero to 5 million in sales, right? That was number one. Number two was we got really, really good at distribution through the Shopify app store. So the Shopify app store, that ecosystem has changed a ton, but we were early in the app store, but we weren't the first for pop-ups, for coupons, for email marketing. But we did find that the more active users we have in terms of like store count, the more positive reviews we have, and like the more the more features that line up with search demand, the better we performed. And so we said, if we continue to offer amazing support, even if free users, we can ask them after a positive experience for a review. That drove a lot of demand for us. And we very quickly overtook a lot of the initial apps that had done the same thing in the Shopify app store as like the number one position for, for so many different marketing categories. Like that alone, I can't stress enough. Those are marketing tactics or positioning tactics that really drove growth for us early in a market. And the only reason that worked though was because we had the product to back it up, obviously. But you know that differentiation and that distribution was great, including the free plan. And, and then early on, like before we offered email, before we offered SMS, right? That's all new over the last few years. We like our wedge was just being the absolute best for that very specific customer at growing their email list, list growth. And that was like a very hot topic in 2015 e-commerce. And so it was just like free plan, distribution through app store, absolute best at growing your email list, great support. And it was highly repetitive. There was nothing exciting or sexy about it. It was day in and day out, just like delivering on that for years and, and before we expanded. We're going to episode 64 with the next clip where I talk to Brian Lockhart, the CEO of Bala Nursing Shoes, and he literally gives a playbook on how they did seven figures in 12 days with this very specific launch strategy. I want to hit on like the milestones that you've kind of had. It's like, obviously you like left your job at Nike and doing some other consulting work, had this idea, you do a small round to kind of test concept. It goes well, time passes, you have to do another round of funding and that round just completed. And that's where we sit today. Is that kind of the poor man's journey uh, of Bala that I try to put together? Yeah, that, that's correct. Uh, you know, we first came to market in September of 2020 via pre-sale. Uh, we sold a uh, million dollars, you know, worth of shoes in 12 days. We opened our Shopify page um, for continuous commerce in early January 2021. 
And, uh, you know, when you look back at our first full year in business, you know, we've achieved some, you know, pretty significant milestones in a year when we were truly testing the market. You know, we focused um, really narrowly on nurses in the United States and distributed direct to consumer. And our first year, you know, we proved the business could be high growth with, you know, four and a half million in revenue. We proved that, you know, it's a high long-term value opportunity because we did 21% repeat purchase rate. And that's notable because most of our customers haven't even reached the end of the useful life of their first pair. So this is all customers buying to have a second color or to have a pair for an alternate use. And, uh, you know, even in a difficult environment where everyone's seeing, you know, things about supply chains driving up costs and driving down margins, we hit 45% gross margin. And, you know, as we closed out the year, you know, we wanted to, you know, gain more traction before going to Series A. So we raised uh, a small seed round of financing at uh, one and a quarter million dollars. So thank you for your participation in that. And, uh, you know, it gave us runway, you know, through the end of this year where we're diversifying our message to appeal to all healthcare professionals. We're going to diversify our product line, both by bringing more color into our core product, uh, the Bala 12s, and we're going to have a second um, offering by the fourth quarter of this year. And, you know, we're scaling acquisition to, uh, you know, build on the marketing channels online that drove our strength in uh, year one. And we're going to start adding new digital channels like TikTok and YouTube. And, you know, now as the pandemic winds down, we'll finally be able to connect directly with, you know, our customers in care settings around the United States. Okay, you just dropped a lot of knowledge there. And I'm going to take a step back because you said something that if I'm listening to this podcast, I'd be like, stop it right now and ask this question. You did seven figures in 12 days. And that's something we got into in the, the first pod. From what I recall, if I'm trying to replicate, okay, how in the world did Brian do that with Bala? How do I replicate that? The strategy that I understand is you put in the hard work. You interviewed something like 200 nurses or 50 nurses. I can't remember you get their feedback, you get them essentially on a list. And then leading up to that launch, you're partnering with people in the nursing community and you know seeding the product with them to get the word out there. And then you launch and boom, seven figures. Is that what you did? What am I missing if I'm trying to do what you did at launch? You hit the nail on the head with the start is, you know, we started by, before we even started, you know, designing and developing a product. We're recruiting a designer to do that. My co-founder, John, and I traveled around the country interviewing nurses everywhere. And we talked to about 500 people before we decided to start the business. And that was a lot of legwork. But it was worthwhile because we gained not just product insight into like what, was, what would be needed to you know, meet the rigors of a shift in a care setting. But also we got to, uh, to understand what it's like to work in healthcare. And then three, we got to meet a lot of different, you know, healthcare professionals. And, uh, you know, one, we did get to meet directly with, you know, countless people who trialed our products. And this was in March of 2020 during the early stage of lockdown. So we had large groups of people here in Portland who trialed our products, gave product feedback to our original designer. And then, you know, we were able to grow really quickly through social media partnerships. I mean, there was one influencer in general who brought a, a large audience, was able to authenticate the product with that audience and drive a lot of our early growth for that pre-sale. We're going to episode 36 to talk to Eric Jorgensen. He's the co-author of the Naval book, and he talks about how one late night tweet essentially changed his professional career. 
Yeah, it's, it's kind of an interesting story. And I don't want to overstate because it's a very like, it's not like Naval and I knew each other or like I had any special access. Like Naval and I did not co-author a book here. What happened is <laughs> I sent out a tweet with a very half-assed like kernel of an idea for a compilation. As I've spent my whole life like reading compilations of Warren and Charlie's, uh, Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger's like letters or Peter Bevlin's collections or principles. There's like Ray Dalio collecting his own set of interests. And so it occurred to me that like Naval has created all of this value in these very ephemeral mediums like podcasting and Twitter, where these insights are just kind of lost to time pretty quickly. But what he's talking about is very evergreen and very relevant over the long haul, but the medium was not preserving them well. And so I just had this list that proposed this thing. I'm like, what if I compile all of this stuff and put it together and turn it, transform the medium into something more permanent? And so I just tweeted, I think my first crack at the title was like, what if I wrote the book of knowledge and compiled a bunch of Naval's stuff and shared it? And he retweeted that. And I woke up to find that like 5,000 people were like, oh, hell yeah, we want that project. I was like, oh, damn, okay. And he was like, oh, if you're going to do it, I'm happy to support and you know provide you. The only thing I had that wasn't public was the Twitter database. So just an export of his whole Twitter history. But yeah, I just worked from that. It's not, we didn't do a ton of back and forth. I didn't have any special access or info or shadow him. We didn't even meet in person or talk live. The whole thing was just done with material that he had already created. That's insane. It was like kernel of an idea and it got very real, very quick, it sounds like. Then you had this pressure, like, crap, I have to write a book now. I mean, how does that process? I had no idea. And I kind of figured it out as I went, bumping into a lot of walls along the way. It was very, at first I was like, oh, this is great. This will be like a three month project. And then as soon as he sort of supported it, I was like, oh, okay, now like my bar for this has gone way up. And I was like, okay, maybe now it's a six-month project, but it ended up being a three-year project. So that's there was some suffering involved in me keeping approach, thinking I was being done, and then like finding out I was still only halfway there. And I'm like, damn, this is. But the bar kept raising, and I kept. I, I just really want. I knew I was going to publish something, and I just wasn't sure I was going to be able to get it to be good enough. And so I just kept working and kept iterating, and it was finally started to get really good feedback from peer readers, and it started to be. I started to pick it up and it was better than I remembered instead of worse than I remembered when I last put it down. And that was when I started to be like, okay, I think we're, I think we're getting there now because I knew the raw material was brilliant and, and was resonating with people. And it was just a question of whether I could put these pieces together the right way to create a really great reading experience for people who had never heard of Naval or had heard a little bit, but wanted to explore the other ideas or wanted to get the full exposure to the full set of his ideas, or at least the core kind of mainstream ones in a, in an organized kind of threaded way, instead of trying to put together, it, it's very interesting to hear that where the best articulations of each idea are. Because sometimes it was a podcast three years ago, matched with a blog post from the last month that like those two ideas actually fit together the right way and answer the obvious next question. So it was just creating kind of one thread of ideas so that as you're reading, you go very naturally from idea to idea. And complementing the right stories with the right ideas, with the right summarizing aphorism that like really helps you stick that idea in your head and make it memorable and actionable. We're going way back to episode 10. Uh, this is where I get to talk to my friend, Ryan Hamilton. He's a comedian that has a Netflix special. He tours for with Jerry Seinfeld and he breaks down how we actually write and comes up with his material. Um, if you're doing anything with copywriting, this one will be entertaining. 
So that leads to, so this is what I'm really interested to hear is if people haven't seen your stuff, please not to be a complete advertisement for you, but go to Netflix, watch it, go to your website, watch the videos, because the thing with your type of comedy, I'm interested to see your process. Is it idea first? Do you write first? But honestly, I I wonder if it's a third is, can I say jokes? Is that what I should say? Jokes? Sure. Okay. Yeah. We'll say jokes. They have this this feeling after you say it, you're like, finally, someone said it. Or someone gets it and they articulate it better than the way you have said it. Those are my favorite types of jokes. And I feel like yours have that component. So I want to know the process. And I'm sure it's very case by case. But like, is it idea first? Is it you just, I'm going to write for 30 minutes per day. Something's going to come up. Or you want to create an emotion. Or do things happen throughout the day and you're writing it down? And where do you write it? Do you have post-its? Is it Evernote? I'm super interested in how you keep the idea machine going. Well, everybody... Everybody has their own process in this, but I think for most comedians, it's kind of a combination of all of what you're talking about because it's very unique in that it's not like a nice thing to have audience feedback. It's like a complete 100% requirement to have audience feedback to create this stuff. So it's a combination and it's a lot of editing really, uh, when you get down to it. I just keep notes on my phone. I also have a little notebook that I keep around the house and by my bed, you know, it's not my phone. But so I have both of those. And then those things are usually not funny when they're written down. They're just <laughs> like these weird kind of like, this is something a lot of people can relate to. Also something I'm interested in, which is really something I like to think about, which is very valuable in creating these types of jokes. That's kind of where those things start. And then I sit down and go, how can I deliver this to the audience, this idea, this weird little premise that I have? Like, how can I get it from this principle into, I need a vehicle to deliver it, you know? Mm -hmm. And then I kind of map that out. And then I, I have a beat or two where I think there might be a laugh. And then that's when I take it on stage. And I try to get to those laughs as soon as possible, but still you know, supporting the idea as much as I can. So as little setup as possible to get to the laugh. And then if you see where you get the laugh, but what usually happens is you get a laugh somewhere that you didn't necessarily expect it. You might get a laugh where you thought you would, but you might not. And then you go, okay, now we've got this new uh, thing to work with. It's like the sculpture you're making, but it's kind of being revealed all the time. And so you go, okay, now you go home and look at it from this other angle and you go, okay, (laughs) I've got this weird thing over here that I didn't think about yesterday. We got to balance it over here, whatever. And so you start just tweaking it and then you take it on stage again and again and again. And you do that like a hundred times. And then for my stuff, (laughs) I get really lazy where I kind of lived with this idea, at least for me, that that process is very difficult. It's really hard to come up with a new premise and get a big laugh at the end. So I end up using the momentum of that to create another laugh and another laugh and another laugh. And I try to just stretch it. And I I like having these big chunks, you know, and then it eventually turns into like this chunk is what we call it. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of how it works for me. But yeah, those reactions that you're talking about, like the classic, that is so true. And that's what you're looking for. Like mm-hmm. people are always saying that. It's like they're laughing. We're going, that is so true. The the recognition that like, I knew that was true. I've never thought about it exactly in that context. I'm so glad. <laughs> it's amazing that you recognized it. And then just the, the surprise that they have confirmed this already at some point in their life, but it's never been verbalized is elicits some sort of laughter, you know? 
In this clip, I'm going to episode 95. I get to talk to a good friend of mine, Adam Weiler, and he gave some pretty interesting commentary on why having a kid gives you superpowers as a founder, and I could not agree more. Uh, hope uh, if, you, if you're a parent listening to this, hope you enjoy this one. We're both like dads of, of two. Like, what has being a dad? What has it taught you as like a business owner, as far as like either perspective or just how to run things when you have a finite amount of time? So, okay, I've been thinking about this. I was going to tweet it. Make sure to tag Alex Hormozzi and More Plates, More Dates, dude, in this segment because they were they were like interviewing each other, or he was interviewing Alex. And they got to a point really bummed me out because they were talking about like, I'm working on my business and like, I don't have time for a kid. And like, you know, first of all, it's like the world would be better with, with like smart people reproducing. Right. It's like, that's just the idiocracy mm. kind of thing. Right. Like <laughs> stupid people are having more kids, smart, smart people, people are having less kids. And like, you see it with your friend groups and like everyone sees it. Right. So there's that. But then there's the, I did not know efficiency. I did not know drive. I did not know fire in my fucking belly until I had a kid. I like, I thought I was good. Like I'm motivated. I'm you know, and I would, if you would ask everyone, it kicks it up to 11. Like there is a, there is a primitive drive that gets activated literally like the first week bringing the kid home. I'm Becky comes in. I'm like typing, hacking away at the computer, like starting another company at like 1 a.m. She's like, "What are you doing?" I'm like, "I don't know. I can't. I can't help." I got like, provide for my family. That's yes. what I got to do. Like, like, I need. Like, we got the cave. We got the. I need to go kill a, a wildebeest and bring it back to the cave. Like, there is some next level that is you can't describe it until until you feel it. It's like. And as a last clip, I'm actually going back to episode number two. This is the first one I did as an interview. And at the end of all of my interviews, I ask one question. What's the nicest thing anyone's done for you in your professional career? And my friend Tommy Griffith, he still to this day has my favorite answer because it's actually not nice. It was kind of rude, but it ended up being the nicest thing that ever happened to him. Hope you enjoy this one. You know what? It wasn't. It was close to professionally, but it's, it was so important to me that I'll just say it. In university, I had, it was actually during my study abroad program, I had a teacher, I had an instructor. There was like this optional thing you could sign up for. We had all these classes and they say, hey, we have this optional thing you can sign up, or, or, sign up for where if you want like kind of more critical feedback on what you're doing, you can do it. And you, you don't have to, but it's some sort of like, if you're if you want to prepare yourself more for the working world or whatever. And I just sort of half-heartedly signed up for it. And I had this teacher I really liked a lot. I was doing okay in the class. I thought it was okay. I was getting like a B in it or a B minus or something. And I always got, I always did okay in school, but kind of did the bare minimum and would participate in things I enjoyed, but kind of zone out on things I didn't. And I had this teacher come in and he just gave me these really brutal, scathing remarks and basically wrote in this very formal way like i was i was completely half-assing everything i was doing <laughs> and it was the most honest and the most brutal anyone had ever been with me and i talked to him i, I remember getting it in an email and then i went to him after class and i said hey <laughs> got your email and he and he like looked at me so seriously and he, and he said look tommy if you decide not to try and to keep halfing half-assing it like this and really just phoning it in you're gonna be fine you're gonna 
live just fine. You're going to do whatever you want to do and you're going to make it. But you could do so much more if you just commit, if you go all in. And, and then he just like kind of shut up and walked away. <laughs> and it like, it rattled me so hard. Like I was, I was shaking. I just, maybe people are just, you know, generally very nice and not always too direct, but this guy like shook me down to my foundation. And ever since that moment, I just, I just realized like it was, it was kind of up to me and it, and, uh, and I could, I could either half-ass it or not. And it was the meanest, nicest thing <laughs> anyone had ever done to me. And I find that I, um, I find that I, I do this now with people and sometimes they don't ask for it and it comes off the wrong way and I get myself in trouble. I'm incredibly direct. And, and part of the reason why is because it was so helpful for me, especially with Americans, especially with the guy was British. I don't know if that, that changes anything, but uh, especially with no, Americans, actually, it, yeah, better, it might yeah. change it, right? It's kind of our culture. You sort of want to smooth things over. I know you're, you're from Oklahoma. That's probably even more so there in New England. We're a little bit more bitter in, with, the, with the winter and everything, right? But, uh, but it's kind of cultural. Like you want to smooth things over. You want to be polite. And you're just sort of, you know, genuinely friendly to people regardless of what you actually think. And the reality is like you get down to the meat and potatoes when you're when you're direct and you're real and you're harsh and not in a mean spirited way, but in a, in a, in a helpful way. And just, there's just so many people, it's just easier to BS. It's just easier to, to say, you're great. I'm great. High fives, you know, pats all around. And so, yeah, I think that's the nicest thing anyone ever did for me professionally, which was be very, very, very direct and real with me and tell me I was, I was half-assing it and I should knock it off. Wow, that that's such a good story. By the way, that makes me not want to sugarcoat things sometimes. Because if because the thing that came across is that he actually like had good intentions giving you that. Because he didn't have to to tell you that. Yeah, exactly, exactly. He 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 really didn't. And that's the thing is like there's not a lot of upside to being a jerk to someone like that. To being very real. To being very direct. You you often make them mad and. Sometimes you never see them again, but every now and then you get someone and it's happened a couple of times where, you know, I emailed him many years later and told him the story and he like, like throw back a very quick email, like good to hear. <laughs> like, okay, cool. He changed my life, but thanks bro. <laughs> but it's happened a couple of times in my life as well with, with friends and family and other people where like they got really mad at me. And then whether it's a month, a week or a month or sometimes even a year later, I get an email or a call or whatever and just say like, Hey man, thank you so much like i realized now you're being really genuine and you are right and thank you you know because if you mean it and you care about the person it gets messy it gets really messy it's it's easy to to just smile and bs through people when you don't care about them but you know when you really care about someone and their outcomes you end up being a little bit direct with them you know what i mean today's episode is brought to you by no one Yep, we have zero sponsors. I haven't reached out to any companies, nor would I expect a reputable brand to give me money. But I'll give a few plugs. First, I send a weekly newsletter each Thursday featuring five articles or tools that have helped me. You can sign up for these weekly updates at jimwhuffman.com. Second, for anyone running a startup, if you need help growing your business, check out Growth Hit. Growth Hit serves as your external growth team. 
After working with over 100 startups and generating a quarter billion in sales for clients, Growthit has perfected a growth process that's hell-bent on driving ROI through rapid experiments. Plus, you'll get to work with yours truly. So if you want to work with a team that's worked with startups that have been funded by Andreessen Horowitz or featured on Shark Tank, then check out growthhit.com. And finally, I wrote a book called The Growth Marketer's Playbook that takes everything I've learned as a growth mentor for venture-backed startups, and I've distilled it down to 140 pages. So instead of hiring a growth team, save yourself some money, get the book, and you can just do it yourself. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I'd love to hear feedback. I'm on Twitter at Jim W. Huffman.